So Roxy, what do you want to be when you grow up? You mean what did I want to be when I grow up? I'm pretty grown up. Ah, maybe. <laughs> okay, you keep growing and you just you're able to quit your job being an amazing editor tomorrow. What would you actually want to do? I once had a therapist ask me if I really just wanted to be a pastor because I keep dating pastors. Mm. So <laughs> today is the first day that I knew that about you. I thought oh. you were kind of I thought you were in your dream job or I thought you would say like a fashion photographer. I wouldn't mind decorating homes for a living. That would be fun. Mm. What about you? So my answer is not spiritual at all. And I'm torn between three options. <laughs> One, I've always thought it'd be really fun to be a travel agent to like make plans for people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two, I think it'd be really fun to host and run a bed and breakfast. <gasps> I do too. <gasps> I think of that so, as like a retirement job. We could yes. do that together. We can have like, you know, therapy animals. Uh-huh. And I'll decorate. I'll like, you know, manage the staff. I can give a sermon on Sundays. <laughs> this is okay. It's coming this together. is our dream. It's coming it is together. all coming together. The Lord has brought this vision before us. We are going to follow up this podcast in many years <laughs> with a sitcom of our version of the Golden Girls. <laughs> Yes. Wait, is that what they did in the Golden Girls? No, but that's what we're going to do in our golden years. Yes. We just need to hire like a lounge singer and a chef. Yes, definitely a (laughs) chef. Before we go farther down that path, this is Saved by the City from Religion News Service. We're a podcast from two single Christian women making our way in New York, pursuing our ambitions without losing our devotion. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. Here on Saved by the City, we plan to upend the idea that God is nowhere to be found in Gotham. Okay, so in seriousness, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I've talked about this a little bit in earlier episodes. I wanted to be a missionary doctor novelist. So... I was going to, you know, be a missionary in a foreign land somewhere, but also a doctor because I felt like that was also really important. Maybe, you know, saving souls and bodies, Mm -hmm. but I love to write. And so I couldn't quite give that up either. So I just sort of imagined myself like in a tent somewhere, like it's raining outside and I'm in a tent and Mm. there's like a candle and I'm like typing away at a typewriter. Are you like in a jungle I think so. Yeah. Something like very rustic. Oh, yeah. And like yeah. Off the grid. There's a mosquito net for sure. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about blood? I don't mind it. It doesn't bother me. Mm. People sometimes bother me, which I think is, is a problem <laughs> for doctors and pastors. <laughs> yeah, it, it does seem like they're a kind of high contact <laughs> kind of profession. It strikes me that our work now, we're not like bumping into people a lot. I theoretically write for people, but yeah, it goes without saying I'm, I value the independence of my work. What was kiddo Caitlin's dream? So I have this vivid memory of this is so strange, but it just shows this proclivity early on for like organization and salesmanship. I apparently used to watch the real estate channel (laughs) and take notes Oh, and then like prepare pitches This house has a master bathroom with an ensuite. I was 
like eight. <laughs> I have no idea where this was coming from. I don't remember having any sort of overt spiritual kind of calling toward the church or professional ministry. A friend did remind me a couple years ago, I don't remember saying this, but apparently when we were teenagers, I said, when I grow up, I want to live in New York and be an editor. Working at a magazine in New York. I think that's probably what I had in my mind. So obviously my work is a little bit different than that vision. Cooler. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, it kind of worked out. And I would say, despite being in some of the more conservative waters of Christianity, I never felt from my parents like they ever restricted what I wanted to be or do. They were always just so encouraging and proud. And so I'm I'm so grateful for that because I know that's not true for everybody, especially for like other women. But did you feel permission to kind of grow up to do and be everything you wanted? Absolutely. If anything, I felt pressure rather than permission. I mean, I think I felt I had to have straight A's and had to be the valedictorian of my class of eight, but still, (laughs) um, and get into a good school. That's why I thought I better be a doctor because that would be like Mm -hmm. the most impressive thing I could think of being. So speaking about Hollywood, like I do feel like it was very much part of the cultural narrative of our childhood in the 80s and 90s of like Mm -hmm. women can shatter those glass ceilings. We're going Mm -hmm. to. We can be anything we want to be. And I definitely grew up with that encouragement, both in what I read and what what I watched and in what I heard from my parents. Yeah. I mean, we were kind of coming up after second wave feminism, which was so focused on women's professional achievements and breaking glass ceilings. Like we take for granted things that our mom's generation really had to work for and fight for. The fact that we could say like, I want to be a doctor, I want to be an editor, I want to be a real estate agent, and no one batted an eye. That's a relatively new phenomenon that I'm super grateful for. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the cultural message really was that female ambition, at least up until a point, was a really good thing. And Mm -hmm. we should live into that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how those things got worked out in actual workplaces is probably a different story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not not in Hollywood workplaces that were shown on screen, but the behind the screen stuff. But at least at least on paper, female ambition was something that we learned from a young age was a good thing and we should aspire to be more ambitious and not let anything hold us back. And it actually wasn't until much later in life, like well on my career path that I started to wonder if some of those beliefs about ambitions could actually be worked out, especially in Christian communities. What do you mean by could they really be worked out? So 2011 was a big year in my life, I had been at Christianity Today magazine for several years. And so in 2011, some of the staff of the magazine, we were attending this annual awards ceremony and conference in Chicago. And there was a luncheon one day that I had to attend. And I'm sure you've been to these luncheons where there's like a rubbery piece of chicken and wilted lettuce and like a whole vat of gloppy ranch dressing on the side. So it was that kind of lunch. And you're supposed to feel kind of grateful for it because it's a free lunch, but you're like, "Uh, I think I'll just order Chipotle. Thanks. (laughs) 
Yeah, I wasn't super excited to be there, but I ended up being seated next to this woman. She was an acquaintance at the time. And at that time, she led this prominent singles ministry. So we were talking and she was asking me about my work with CT and hermeneutics. And I felt like at some point as I was sharing my excitement with her, she kind of got this look of concern or admonition. <laughs> and she said, you just, you know, you, you have to make sure not to pour everything into your career because I spent my 20s and 30s really going after my career and just kind of expecting that a husband and a family would come uh, and they never did. You know, I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. Some iteration of that. And, you know, if that's how she feels, I'm, I'm sorry that she doesn't have what she wants out of life. And at the same time, I didn't really know what to do with this advice. And nobody would ever say that to a man. Yeah. And I guess you could think, well, men don't have like the biological limitations that women do as it comes to bearing children. But also, it does just, I think, illuminate this bigger problem and narrative around women's ambition, which is it's a good up to a point. You can invest in your career up to a point, but it should not get in the way. But... I think at this point in my life, I do think my ambition has come at a cost because the man that I had planned to marry was not okay with an ambitious woman. I'm not saying all Christian men are like him, but you know, we we had this very quick whirlwind romance. We were engaged within seven months of meeting each other. I remember this. Yeah. And there were, you know, obviously lots of things that worked about the relationship. And then over time, just realizing there was a lot more that didn't. And one of the sticking points that kept coming up for my ex-fiance was he realized like, oh, she's actually really invested in her work. Mm -hmm. It's not going away once we get married. She's not going to drop everything to support my ministry career to be a pastor's wife if we get married and like I would be traveling for work, like I'd be on work trips and I'd have meetings with people on my team and he would be upset that I was meeting with male colleagues. Uh, and I just, I just okay. thought, yeah, what yeah. is this going to look like 10 years from now? Cause I don't, I don't anticipate not working with men. You don't get to not work with men. <laughs> right. I, I don't know how to avoid that at this point. And so he just told me, like, shortly and not coincidentally, before we ended things, like, he just said, like, I don't believe in the value of your work. <gasps> he was like, I just don't think it's that important. Oh. Dagger to the heart. I feel it for you. It was real. It was real bad. It's obviously it's good that I didn't get married to this person. Yes. But doesn't erase that and doesn't erase that feeling of is that always going to be an issue forever with every man, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of lingering trauma. From I think that and I think it's maybe an insecurity. I feel it less now because of where we live and the fact that being a professionally oriented woman is like not a weird thing at all. <laughs> but I think earlier in life, I really did feel like, am I going to have to choose? Am I going to have to give up? this work that I love. And I think at this point in my life, if I had to choose, 
I would choose career over being married to someone who would ask me to give it up out of a sense of insecurity or what my role is. I am 100% with you. Have you met men like this? I mean, (laughs) I don't want to be that cheap like, me too, me too. But yeah, me too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, also a man in ministry Mm -hmm. who definitely came at the relationship like with this language of I like ambitious women Mm -hmm. egalitarianism yeah I totally expect that like the person I marry would be the breadwinner because I'm in ministry like it won't be me but kind of what you hinted at like that's one thing to say and one thing to actually live Mm -hmm. and the further and further we got into the relationship and the more and more it was like we might get married Mm -hmm. more of the tensions came out like well but when we have kids would you really not want to stay home would you Mm -hmm. really keep working like when it gets down to the practical exactly when it got down to the really practical and I was like well to me it's just like there's so many ways to work that question out especially in today's Mm -hmm. world I mean I hate to say this but when it really got down to like the nitty gritty of those conversations, he really just wanted to have a wife that would raise his kids the way he was raised. So he wanted to marry his mom. That's the crass way of putting it. Yeah. I mean, that is the way that I have put it in the past. <laughs> is okay, the, yeah. so I'm not too far off. No, I have, <laughs> I have literally said that you just want to marry your mom. But I think it was in part because like in the end, that was as far as his imagination could really take him. Like, this is what it Mm -hmm. looks like to raise kids. There is not another way to raise kids. Yeah, if you've grown up in a cultural environment where, like, every single woman decided, like, either I'm never going to work outside the home or as soon as I have kids, that's immediately put on the back burner. And I know that there are lots of factors that go into women making those decisions, and sometimes that's really difficult But if you don't have any models of a true shared marital partnership where both partners are invested in each other's work as well as committed to their family life together, then it's easy to fall back into those scripts. And it sounds like you and I ended up dating men who had scripts in their minds of what we needed to be for them that did not work with what we wanted for our lives and I would even dare say what God wanted for our lives Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh we've talked a lot about Hollywood being our inspiration or finding role models in movies and TV shows of ambitious women that we thought we could grow up to be like them but honestly the Bible's got It's got some pretty feisty, ambitious women in it. Seriously, you have a judge, Deborah. You have a queen, Esther. You have a wealthy patron of the early church, Phoebe. You have arguably the first evangelist of the gospel being women. These women are kicking butt and taking names all for the Lord, of course. Our guest today, a very ambitious woman in her own right, has found a lot of inspiration from the women in the Bible. Shannon Bream is a TV news correspondent, a former attorney, and a beauty pageant winner. I think that when we tell women 
you're only going to be valuable if you get married and if you have children. I don't think that that is a full understanding of how God sees us. I, I really don't. Our conversation with Shannon is coming right up after we give a warm shout out to the patrons who make all of this possible. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. Full disclosure, I work there. For the best in global religion reporting, visit religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, please tell us. We covet your five-star reviews. Please rate us and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We don't want to sound desperate, but we really, really want your reviews. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com or follow along on Twitter at hashtag Saved by the City. We're jazzed today to speak with Shannon Bream, best known as an anchor for Fox News Channel. Shannon is the author of the best-selling new book, Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of 16 Women and Their Lessons for Today. Thanks so much for being with us, Shannon. So I'm sure you get this question a lot, but do you have a favorite woman of the Bible that you gravitate toward in terms of a role model or virtues, and especially in your very high-profile work where you have to make difficult decisions and you're in the spotlight, you know, are, is there a specific woman from scripture that you keep returning to? They all, I, I mean, I, I came to love them so much more in, in really going through all of their stories. I aspired to somebody like Deborah from the Old Testament, one of the mm-hmm. lesser known stories that she was a judge. She was a leader of the nation of Israel. And for a lot of people who think women were kind of bit players or second-class citizens in the Bible. Like she upends all of that because she, you know, is the one who then leads them into this battle against the Canaanites where they were badly outmanned, outgunned in every way, being oppressed. And she'd called up her general, Barak, and said, hey, God says we're supposed to go into this battle. And he's like, wait a minute, I'll go if you go. I don't want to go. If you don't go, I'm not going. I mean, Mm. he clearly knew she was anointed. She was respected. I think in a lot of ways, she's a good model. And I think for me, the most convicting thing is sort of that she was obedient, didn't Mm -hmm. question God when he gave her this assignment. And I aspire to be more like that. You know, we had a feeling that Deborah was going to be the (laughs) one that you said. So we actually, when we were talking about this interview before, we were like, we should ask her something really bizarre. Like, what would Deborah do at Fox News? <laughs> so right. we're just going to ask you that. If, if you Deborah know, had um, your role at Fox, what would she do? I would love to book her as a guest. That's what I would love <laughs> to do because I got a lot of questions about just being a woman who was in a different field. I mean, military, leadership over Israel. Mm-hmm. I mean, things that in those days were not common. I mean, she's uncommon. I think she would speak truth. Uh, I feel like Deborah might, though, go over into the line of opinion. I think she would have some <laughs> things to say that maybe aren't my current role, but I think that she was bold and unafraid. And I love that about her. Yeah. I mean, figures like Deborah, but also like Esther and some of the earliest like female apostles kind of put to lie this sense that Christianity just relocates women to the sidelines. We see God lifting up specific women in specific times and places for his purposes. And so I think that kind of challenges some conceptions of Christian women always need to be meek and mild and (laughs) never Mm -hmm. speak up or never be bold. I mean, obviously, we have so many role models. How do you square that with some of the trickier passages? I'm thinking especially of passages of the New Testament where Paul's telling women to, you know, be quiet in worship or to Mm -hmm. submit to their husbands. How do you kind of make sense of that in your in your own life and faith practice? 
For me, I found in looking to Christ and his relationship with the women in his life and during his ministry, to me, said a lot. He broke the norms of the day. Even the the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans did not interact. There was terrible enmity between those. But the fact that he was this esteemed, whether people believed he was the son of God or not, even just his earthly position as this esteemed rabbi, that he would be alone at the well talking with her, that was breaking a norm. I mean, mm-hmm. again and again, we see him going to women with compassion and with respect The Mm -hmm. woman who was going to be stoned after being caught in adultery, Mm -hmm. he did tell her, go and turn from your sin, but I don't condemn you. So Mm -hmm. I see Mm -hmm. so much respect there. The fact that the sisters, Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus, that we have those passages where Mary is clearly studying at the feet of Jesus. Again, something a woman in that day would not have been doing. So I think there's plenty of room there to see that Christ respected and exalted women. He pointed them out to the disciples sometimes as a learning opportunity. The, The widow who gave just the tiniest bit in the temple when everybody else was coming with these big showy gifts. And he's like, she's the one who really gave. She's the one who should be esteemed because it was such a huge sacrifice for her. So I think he pointed to women and treated women with great respect, revealing himself first after the resurrection to Mary Magdalene, that she's Mm -hmm. the first witness as a woman. I think we clearly see the message from Christ is that women uh, are created in the image of God and we can debate the roles that we have, but uh, clearly he didn't see them in any way as second class. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the bigger areas of dissonance, I think, living in New York City, and I'm sure in some ways for you in D.C. and in the position that you're in is this sense of like the traditional path for a lot of Christian women that they're taught is this sort of like submission path, like get married and have kids and stay at home and maybe homeschool in some areas, you know, and that's so different than the sort of expectations of women in New York or the or the realities of what women are doing and what any one of the three of us on this podcast are doing. When I saw your book, I thought, how does she square that? You know, how does she mm-hmm. think about sort of those teachings of Christianity with the life that, that you've mm-hmm. led? I actually um, talked about this in my first book, Finding the Bright Side, that was out a couple of years ago, because I've always had questions about why don't you have kids? Why are you doing these things that are, you know, not traditional? And I, Hmm. you know, I think about that growing up and there were different churches in my life that we were involved in, but there was one when I was very young where I very much got the sense that women weren't to say anything, weren't to speak up and have controversial opinions, that you were primarily to be a mother which is a beautiful gift. And um, for a lot of women, I think that is the deepest desire of their heart. But I also came to feel like God gives us different assignments. I would Mm -hmm. never tell a man, you can only do these things or a woman, you can only do these things. And for me, I never felt a call to motherhood. And I think it's the most selfless thing you can possibly do, which to me means you got to put your whole heart into it. Um, And Mm. if a child came into our life, we're like, great, we'll celebrate it. It's wonderful, but we don't feel Mm -hmm. called to that. But I felt a lot of pressure. And even among women in the church, I would get a lot of questions. Oh, yeah. Why don't you have kids? And it was always kind of an awkward conversation for me. But listen, um, I feel like if God wanted me to have children, there's nothing that would stop that. And we would welcome Mm. them and be totally excited. A little Mm -hmm. late now, but you never know how kids are going to come into your life. There's Um, Sarah and Abraham, you know. No, no, no. (laughs) <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, please not that, God. <laughs> but, but if you're going to do it sooner rather than later, Jesus is good. Yeah. But yeah, I find that there are tricky conversations to have because if you do things that are non-traditional, people wonder why. But I really, mm-hmm. I think everybody has got a different call in their life. I think that when we tell women you're only going to be valuable if you get married and if you have children, 
I don't think that that is a full understanding of how God sees us. I, I really don't. One of the things that struck me when I was reading through your book and seeing all of those women's stories compiled into one place was how many of them were described as beautiful. The women, they were lovely. And it seems, you know, Esther was in a beauty pageant and you know what that's like. You've been in a few of those and won a few of them. But it also seems really clear to me from reading their stories that beauty is a very complicated double-edged sword for these women. Mm -hmm. It wins them affections, but then those attentions often come at a high price. Many of these beautiful women are molested, they're sold, they're manipulated, as we just heard. They don't own themselves. They don't have a lot of agency. So as someone who, you know, has been in front of a lot of people in television, how do you see the role of beauty in your own life? And has it been something of a double-edged sword? I do think it's super subjective. I'm always amazed at how much my husband and I think different people are like super gorgeous or not. Sure. I mean, the, like <laughs> the physical part of it. And I think sometimes women are underestimated. Like you said, you can gain great favor or maybe an entree or people are, are more attracted to you just in relationship or wanting to be around you or offering you things, that kind of thing. I do think that any woman who relies just on the physical, we're all in trouble because we're getting older every day. I turned 50 a few months mm -hmm. ago. You can't rely on that. So I think at the end of the day, what the Bible is really more about celebrating when it specifically talks about that context of women being attractive is the inner beauty of, of the reliance on God, of knowing that our worth doesn't come from any genetics or anything else, that it's, it's about our being a daughter of the King. Um, and I think anything short of that that we rely on is going to be a really dead-end street. One thing that is pretty clear, too, in these stories is <laughs> there's a lot of stuff we wouldn't put up with these days. <laughs> like, I mean, it's a very True. patriarchal society and there's a lot right. of sexism, but you are working in a place that has come under a lot of fire over many years mm -hmm. for being a sexist environment and even a sexually abusive environment. Like, it's a very complicated place, I'm sure, to continue yeah. working knowing that that has been in the past. How do you kind of wrestle with that in your own life? Well, I started out my professional career as a sex harassment attorney. So I'd had a lot of yeah. versing in that and had seen a lot of that in the workplace up close and personal. And I've been open about the fact that there were things I struggled with at our workplace with people who used to work there who mm -hmm. are gone now. And our environment is much more different. I think like anytime that you go through something so publicly, it sheds a lot of light, which I think is a super helpful thing because now everybody's on notice and mm -hmm. we have much better channels for accountability and reporting and openness. So there's been good to come from that. Mm -hmm. But there was a time, I mean, there were years that, you know, I had a boss who made me uncomfortable and I felt mm -hmm. like I was going to have to dress a certain way. I was going to have to flirt back with him. I was going to have to have conversations that were very uncomfortable to me so that I could stay in his good graces or mm -hmm. not lose my job or be buried so that I was never having any airtime. And that was very difficult. But I feel like for me, it was less so only because as a sex harassment attorney, I knew what my rights were. I knew where the lines were. What's happened now is that I'm thankful that everyone who works there knows what their rights are and has alternate channels to go to to get help. And so the aftermath of what was a really painful thing for everybody has been good. There's mm. been good to come from it. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of women in similarly uncomfortable work environments, you make a calculus. You know, right. if I stay, maybe I can change the culture or I can advocate for other women or this could give me the opportunities that I really want and even that I feel called to, but how much do I put up with? Mm -hmm. 
And Mm -hmm. I think as women of faith, at the end of the day, it really has to come from a place of sensing God's call to a particular place at a particular time and Mm -hmm. resting in that and also asking for help and asking Mm -hmm. for advocates or asking for patients, hoping that change does come Mm -hmm. and and justice comes for victims, that that there is a sea change in the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's frustrating to me when I hear somebody will flippantly say, well, just get another job. Just go somewhere Mm. else. That's Mm -hmm. just not practical for any woman. And we should never ask that to be the solution for her because Mm -hmm. especially if she's got children or a family, or even if she's just taking care of herself, jumping in and out of the workplace, I I wouldn't advise that for a man or a woman. If you're trying to move up in your career, you know when a situation is untenable and it's not safe for you to stay or you need to go. And, you know, every company in this country is supposed to have avenues for you to go to HR right. mm-hmm. or to go to other places. We shouldn't ask women to sacrifice their careers or their jobs because they're in a bad situation. Just think it's as simple as getting another job. I think for most women, it's never going to be that simple. Mm-hmm. And it puts the onus on the women right. to change it <laughs> and, and to flee instead of like holding the men accountable. Right. And, 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 and cleaning changing up the, the place. culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, like I said, what we had to go through very publicly and Everybody was kind of put on the spot and put through the ringer and investigations and everything else. I'm, I'm really thankful for the good that's come on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. So when you decided to write this book, you know, what prompted that? And, and what are you, you know, if you were like, my wildest dreams came true for this book, what would they be? Well, you know what? From the beginning, I've prayed like, Lord, this is your book. I pray that everybody who touches a copy of this It would deepen their faith if they're not a believer that they would have new questions and draw closer to God. The Holy Spirit would work through this. And if they are, like me, somebody who knew these stories, see that there are deeper layers and that there is more that we can mine from this to see God's faithfulness and his promises. Listen, on these women, not on their timeline, not the way that they thought it was going to be many times, but that he had purpose and he was working through it. Well, congratulations. Thank you. That's really exciting. (laughs) I mean, like like my husband and I say, it's God's book. (laughs) It really Mm -hmm. is. And it makes a lot of sense to me that a book about good news for women, Mm -hmm. how God really sees women, how God values them, that Christian faith has a positive message for women would really resonate right now. Mm -hmm. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, Listen, next time I'm in New York, Post COVID, yes. <laughs> feel safe and sound. I would love to see you guys in person. That would be so fun. fun. We, yeah, we're, we can't wait to you know meet friends at a restaurant again. <laughs> yes, just to be out and re- breathe fresh air and not be afraid. Mm-hmm. That would yes. be good yes. for everybody. <laughs> so many of us are inspired by the women of the Bible to break glass ceilings for God, so to speak. Well, almost all glass ceilings. Ironically, the glass ceiling that still kind of feels out of reach is the glass steeple. Ah, ah, I see what you did. Well, like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, like there's a big piece of me that longs to be a pastor, but growing up, that never even crossed my radar that that was a possibility. Instead, I thought the best thing that I could do for God was to be a missionary because I just never imagined that being a pastor was something a woman could do. I'd never seen that. Well, our very first guest on Saved by the City, as you recall, is a female pastor, as well as the first female president of New York Theological Seminary. She's amazing. But like you, she grew up in a church where women couldn't be pastors. She shared her journey with us of how she got to a place where she felt like she could preach from the pulpit. And uh, 
when she shared that with us, I just remember both of us were like almost in tears and we couldn't use it for that first episode, but we knew we were going to resurrect it at some point. And here it is. Dr. Lakeisha Walrend. I was born and raised in Texas and spent my early childhood in a very small town uh, called Texas City, Texas, which is about 20 minutes from Galveston and about 30 minutes from Houston. And so I come from very, very humble beginnings, but from a family that had huge faith. You know, coming from small town Texas, it was one way. You know, it was just one way. Everybody had to travel that same road. You know, it it was Jesus or nothing. You know, anybody that doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell. That's what I was taught. That's how I grew up. (laughs) Those are the things that I said, not only even about um, Jesus, but also about women in ministry. You know, I grew up in a church where there were no women in ministry. My pastor preached from the pulpit. God does not call women uh, to ministry. And so when I went to Spelman College, my freshman year, I took a class called Women in the Bible. And it was that class Mm. that really began to open me up so that my ears could even be receptive to hear something new. (laughs) And that was basically a, a female professor that I had And I was literally doing terrible in her class. I wasn't quite failing, but I was close enough, right? Mm -hmm. Because every time I called God, he or wrote that in a paper, she'd give me an F. You know, every time. (laughs) Yeah, she was just very like, you are going to be open. You you are, you know, if you're not going to be open outside of this classroom, you're at least going to be open inside the classroom. How interesting. And so basically what happened was we were nearing the end of the semester and she was preaching. Um, at King Chapel, which is a chapel at Morehouse College, right across the street from Spelman. And she was offering extra credit if we came to hear her preach. And I needed the extra credit because I was like an AB honor roll student, but I had like a C minus in this class. <laughs> so, you know, I go there and in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go here. I'm going to get this extra credit, you know. And I went to this chapel and this woman stood up in this pulpit, Dr. Flora Wilson Bridges, and started preaching. And I remember sitting there feeling the Holy Spirit, hearing this powerful word. Clearly, this woman was anointed. I couldn't even move. I literally started sliding down out of my seat. By the time she finished preaching, and she was preaching about the women who was bent over double. Uh, The sermon was, it's time to stand up straight. And by the time she finished preaching, I was literally sitting on the floor. I'd slid all the way down to the floor Mm. and I was crying, 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 just crying. Mm. I couldn't even speak. The only thing I could think was they lied to me. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's just giving me goosebumps. (laughs) Oh my God. Right. I was just, I couldn't, it was like I was paralyzed and all I could think was they lied to me. And then uh, my second question was, why would they lie to me? Mm -hmm. Because this woman was preaching with power. She's preaching with clarity. She's giving us hope. And I believed all 18 years of my life up until that point that there was no way a woman could do that. So for me, that experience gave me permission mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. question everything. Wow. And that is really when my faith began to open up. I think mm. it's amazing that that happened at 18. <laughs> I, <laughs> I definitely didn't hear a woman preach 
until much later than that. Wow. I Yeah, I think it's awesome that you got that as soon as you did, especially yeah. it sounds like that was probably a pivotal moment for you in terms of even your own vocational calling and feeling like you could step into that. Well, absolutely. But another pivotal moment for me was when I found myself in college, right, the next year, pregnant and unmarried. Mm. Right. So we know what that means, particularly Uh in the Baptist church. You know, they didn't want to serve me communion. I couldn't sit on the floor in the church. I had to sit in the balcony with the other sinners. And I remember thinking, my God, how can these people treat me like this? Hmm. You know, I grew up in this church. I was born in this church. I've served in this church. And I make this one mistake and I am basically almost excommunicated. And I remember being so angry with God. And I was just saying, God, how could you? Like, we've, I've loved you from the time I can remember. You've been with me. You've, you've opened doors. I've seen the scriptures, you know, come to life. And I, how, could you, how could you do this? And that was the first time I ever heard the voice of God. And very clearly, God said, I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. That's the church, not, not me. Mm-hmm. So this is one year at 18, I'm hearing the first woman preach. And then at 19, understanding that there's a difference between God and the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I think those two things at 18 and 19 really kind of set me on this trajectory of being open to faith, you know, being open to possibility, yeah. you know, understanding that God is so much bigger than a book that we try to confine God to. And so, yeah, those were kind of two pieces that really set me on a different trajectory. Talk a little bit about your transition to New York and how was it connected to your own calling to ministry and to ministry leadership specifically? So basically, after being there and working with my husband, um, I was finishing my dissertation. So I elected not to you know, get mm-hmm. a full-time mm-hmm. job. So I was making sure my kids got acclimated well and just kind of helping him at the church. And my husband needed help. And so it's actually the trustees of the church who went to him with the notion of, you know, we need to hire your wife to help you in ministry. So it really came as a shock because my plan was to finish my PhD and go into higher ed, you know, and keep doing ministry kind of on the side. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that is when I started 2006 in full-time ministry as executive pastor of First Corinthian Baptist Church, uh, where I was responsible for all of the administrative aspects. So from everything from human resources to the building, operations, to the financing, the budget, all of those pieces And then I was doing the preaching and the teaching and the ministering, you know, as well. So it was quite a transition and certainly moving from education full-time into ministry full-time in this brand new city where I had no family and I had no friends and people were honking their horns at me all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm, It was was quite a transition. Mm. When you received that call from the trustees to come on full-time. Did you have some of those old narratives about women in ministry kind of pop up again? Did you have to wrestle with that internally or was it clear in your mind, no, this is this is actually what God is is calling me to do and to step into at this time in my life? That is such a great question. And I think for me, by the time I got to New York, I was pretty settled and Mm -hmm. accepting, had accepted my call and was pretty settled that God had initiated, you know, this call and this spiritual life and and the spiritual leadership that I was embracing. 
that was 2004. But I still today have people in my family, aunts and uncles and cousins who do not believe that I've been called into ministry. Mm-hmm. So this is 20 something years in and so still dealing with those notions. Mm-hmm. But at FCBC, while they loved me as the pastor's wife, you know, and this person working alongside, you know, Pastor Mike in ministry, when I was called to be executive pastor, I was the first woman to be a pastor at FCBC. So Mm -hmm. there was quite a lot of opposition to a Mm. female stepping into a pastoral role. And that opposition was not just from men, but it was from women as well. Yeah. And so I just, you know, continued to move forward and navigate. I mean, I can't imagine if I was accepting call, you know, at that point, because then it probably would have been a completely different story. But because I was really strong in my faith and, you know, had accepted who I was as not only a Christian, but, you know, as a woman of God and as a proclaimer, as a prophet, as a, as a priestess, I was able to navigate those waters with a smile on my face and joy in my heart, being intentional about not trying to prove myself to anyone because I didn't believe that was my work. You know, that's God's work. God does the call. God God sets the anointing. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke. So I kept my eyes focused on doing the work that I felt like I'd been called to do as opposed to trying to prove who I was to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you're as amazed by Dr. Walrand as Roxy and I are, do be sure to go back to our very first episode, The Slippery Slope, to hear about Dr. Walrand's journey from small town Texas to big city pastor. In your wildest dreams, did you ever imagine you were going to be a podcast co host? <laughs> Um, no, probably because of technological limitations of the time, but it is what I want to be when I grow up today. Absolutely. We are breaking glass ceilings right (laughs) and left. And thanks in no small part to all of our listeners out there. So if you are enjoying Say by the City, you should definitely let us know. Get in touch with us. Tweet us at the hashtag Save by the City. We'll reply. We want to hear from you. Tell us who we should talk to next. What should we talk about? This week, we'd like to give a very special shout out to Abby in California, Grace in Ohio, and Marta in Boston. We so appreciate your fan mail. Thank you for the love. Be like them. Email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. Saved by the City is a Religion News Service production. The executive producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. And we also get production assistance from Elizabeth Wyndham. Chaz Russo put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.